Uh, we are continuing in our series this morning entitled God at the Mic, and we are walking through each of the minor prophets of the Old Testament. So if you have your Bible, you can swing to the minor prophet of Zephaniah, perhaps one of the lesser known of the minor prophets, um, but one that is uh, close to my heart. Uh, you may or may not know that McCartney and I are both Palm Beach Atlantic University alumni. Go sailfish. Anyone? All right, fine. Um, the difference between McCartney and I's experience at Palm Beach Atlantic University is when McCartney was there and he wanted to call a friend, he would pick up his cell phone. When I was there, you used the landline in your dorm room to make that phone call, and it was my sophomore year of college when everybody suddenly had these little devices we now know as cell phones. So, yes, that's how old I am. Um, I do remember, though, uh, we had a, a student-led worship service every Thursday night called TNL, Thursday Night Live. And um, there was a, a gal named Lisa Mack, who I remember my freshman year, uh, maybe it was my sophomore year, was uh, sharing a call to worship scripture as we were about to begin to sing. And I'm sure I'd heard the passage growing up, but it never really hit my head, never really hit my heart. But she read uh, Zephaniah 3.17, and she read those words, for the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. This idea of God delighting over his people. And it it hit my heart in a way that never had before. And uh, I really, that became one of my my favorite verses um, really throughout the remainder of my college years considering this, this new dimension of and helping me understand greater just the characteristics of who God is, what makes God, God, the love that he has and the way that he cherishes his people. So we're going to look at a larger portion of that very book this morning. We're going to look at Zephaniah chapter 3, and I'm going to start us in verse 9, and we're going to read all the way to verse 20 this morning. Hear the heart of God here this morning. Uh, I'm going to read the English Standard Version this morning, again, starting in chapter 3 and verse 9. The Bible says, For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly, They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. Verse 17, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time, I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast 
and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At the time when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth. When I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. Amen and amen. Let's pray one more time and ask God's blessing over his word this morning. Father, we're grateful to be in your presence. We're grateful for this magnificent kind of love grace that you have shown us, Lord. We thank you that in Jesus you have solved the problem of our sin and have brought us back into, restored us to relationship with you. So Father, we put all of our hope and our trust in you this morning. We submit to your word. We pray that you would teach us, draw us nearer to you this morning than when we came in, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways this morning here that Zephaniah 3 teaches us about the reality of the heart of God for sinners like me and you. The first is this, and we're going to go all the way back to the very beginning of the book in Zephaniah 1 and see this particular reality at play. God is the God of perfect justice and judgment for our sins. Now you may go, hold on. (laughs) I like that other verse a whole lot better. Why do you got to bring this stuff in? We were having a good time, Ben. Why, why, why would you do this? But what I want us to see afresh here is the reality of the whole of Scripture and, again, see the bad news in order to understand and appreciate the good news. See, the reality is this, is every single person on the planet, doesn't matter when you live, doesn't matter what your worldview is, doesn't even matter what your faith commitments are, everybody recognizes when they look at the world around them that there is a problem, that things are broken, that things are not maybe the way that they should be. And what do we do with those realities and those problems? Zephaniah seems to, in the passage that we just read, seems to look forward, prophesying a time in the future that will look a whole lot like a time back, 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 maybe even to the Garden of Eden and Adam, Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve, a time of perfection where God's relationship with humanity was perfect and there was no sin, there was no injustice, there was no wickedness. And Zephaniah is saying that that's going to come again. But yet the reality that we see now does not at all seem to mirror what Zephaniah is promising. So the question then for all of us is, well, what is the problem? How did we get to what we see out there and in here currently? How do we get this sin problem? And so the Bible, again, is very clear on that. Let's look at Zephaniah chapter 1 as part of our answer. And the very beginning of Zephaniah's prophetic word, verses 1 through 7, says this, The word of the Lord that came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, son of Gedaliah, son of Amariah, son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will cut off from this place the remnant of Baal and the name of the idolatrous priests along with the priests. Those who bow down on the roofs to the host of the heavens, those who bow down and swear to the Lord and yet swear by Milcom, which is another false prophet of that era or a false God of that era. Verse six, those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire 
of him. As I'm sure is not a surprise to you at this point, if you've been with us through this series, the minor and the major prophets make very clear the reality of God's wrath and God's judgment, and rightly so. They feel very heavy, they can feel like a whole lot, and they are a whole lot, and they ought to cause a healthy fear within us. They ought to give us pause to consider the problem that is being identified here, which is the sin of humanity, the sin of each one of us. But inasmuch as the prophets call out sin, the prophets also, the scripture Old and New Testament also tells us the reality of God's mercy. Zephaniah shows us yet again that God does justice perfectly all the time and God does mercy perfectly all the time. Uh, It is not, as, as many will misunderstand the scripture, it is not mean old cranky rules legalistic God of the Old Testament and spineless, wimpy, doesn't care anymore, nicey-nice, no more rules, everybody, every dog goes to heaven, God, in the New Testament. God is the same, Jesus Christ is the same, yesterday, today, and forever. Malachi 3.6, again, I, the Lord, do not change. The reality is that God is the same, his covenants are the same, his salvation offer made to the world is the same, and there is one way to salvation, Old Testament and New Testament, and his name is Jesus. Jesus shows up in the New Testament and he says in John 14, 6, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Zephaniah reminds us, reminds God's people that God is good in his mercy and God is good in his justice. This is a huge problem for sinners like you and me, but understand that God could not and he would not be God and he would not be good if he ignored sin, if he left injustices to continue, if he swept it under the rug or made evil things secret. No, no, God deals with sin. And so the rest of Zephaniah is explaining both the bad news and the good news. Zephaniah is speaking both of the temporary consequences of our sin or judgments of our sin, as well as he has in mind eternity. His description, you can hear in the words that I just read, sound very reminiscent of things like the flood, God's judgment for sin in that particular era in the days of Noah. Now, looking back uh, with our eyes today from 2023, we know with great certainty that this man, Zephaniah, would have delivered his prophetic word between 639 and 629 B.C., And we know that his word in the temporal sense was fulfilled in the destruction and exile that the nation of Babylon brought really just a few years later in 587 BC. Those judgments came true. But even those judgments, those temporary consequences, then they are for them and for us, they are a mercy of God. Those consequences are a reminder of the eternal judgment that is coming for all those who do not put their faith in Christ. When we experience the natural consequences of our sin, God uses even that believer for your good. There is mercy even in the justice. So here's the bad news. (laughs) You and me are sinners. We cannot solve this problem ourselves. When Zephaniah and the other minor prophets speak, they give a laundry list of sin problems that are within God's people. Things like corrupt worship, Mixing true faith with false religions. Hypocritical priests were just called out in the passage that we read. Corruption, dishonesty, uh, unjustly treating the poor, the widow, 
the immigrant, sexual immorality of all kinds, lack of obedience, lack of faithfulness towards God and towards his covenant promises. God has always kept his covenant promises. We always break them. We deserve God's righteous judgment and justice for sin. And when we honestly face the bad news, the reality of of our sin problem, it allows us to understand, appreciate, and run to the good news of the gospel that Zephaniah himself, even in the Old Testament, begins to put forward to us. So number two, we begin to see this turn in the first half of the passage that I read for us in verses 9 through 13 in particular. We see that God is the God of life-changing forgiveness and restoration. Not just the life that you will live here on earth, but eternally speaking, God is a God of life-changing forgiveness and restoration. In Christ, God will change you. And really, the rest of this passage is ways that in Christ, God brings about revolutionary change in our lives. The first that we're going to see here is that God will change your sinfulness into sanctification. Zephaniah jumps in at what, what might strike us as a, an interesting place. But if we look again, Zephaniah 3, 9, and then also in verse 13, Zephaniah says this, on behalf of the Lord, for at that time, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. Verse 13, those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall they be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. If we just survey verses 9 through 20, our primary passage this morning, do you know 14 different times God says, I will, I will do this, not us doing something first, but rather God and his kindness and mercy saying, I will first show love. I will reach out to you. I will care for you. I will provide these things for you. These are God's promises of restoration from sin over and over and over. We see God initiating. We see God reaching down in love. Most of all, in in Christ coming down to us. God's doing it. God's doing what we could not and we would not do ourselves. See, because if God doesn't first change our hearts, we have no hope of changing them ourselves. If God does not show his love to us, we have no hope of simply trying harder and doing better and becoming somehow a better person. God must first intervene. It is God who gifts us the new birth. I don't birth myself. Birth itself is a gift, and in particular spiritually to our dead hearts. It's God's effective call that enables us, even in this verse, to call upon the name of the Lord in salvation. It's God's effective call that empowers us to serve him, the way verse 9 says, giving us the gift of purpose in life, giving us the gift of fulfillment in life. How many people are struggling to figure out who am I, what am I here for, what is my purpose? God gifts us even that. And God says, I will sanctify or make holy. When we say sanctify, he will make us holy. He will make even our speech righteous. The Westminster Shorter Catechism defines the word sanctify or sanctification this way. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live 
unto righteousness. We see this play out in places like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And so very specifically, Zephaniah zeroes in on and says, there will no longer be from God's people words of hatred, words of of judgment, words of slander, words of deception or dishonesty. Perverse words no longer will be found in God's people's mouths. Can you imagine that day? What a kindness and what a grace. Because how many people in this, this world have been harmed by what one Christian may have said to them? How many people, a genuine part of their story is, uh, you know, I, I feel jaded by the church or somebody in the church. Someone said something that really wounded me, hurt me. As we are, we are Christ's bride, but we obviously make mistakes all the time. And what an amazing thing it would be for people to experience that healing and for there to be a day, one day, where we will be as God's people done with sin that the words that come out of our mouths like Ephesians 4.29 calls us to would be words that would encourage and edify and build up those around us. Just imagine, parents, like one Sunday afternoon where all the words that came out of your kids' mouths would only encourage their little brothers and sisters. What a day. What a day. In Christ, God brings change. Here's another change. In Christ, God will change your shame into glory. We see this in verse 11. Shame into glory. On that day, you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. Just to clarify our vocabulary here, two, two realities that we see in life, guilt and shame. They are distinct. Guilt is I did something bad. Shame is I am something bad. Now, the reality is, is every single person on planet Earth has a problem with both. And you can actually take that shame word and you can split it into two additional categories because of the the overarching reality of sin in our lives. We experience shame for two different reasons. One can be, I committed sin, I am guilty, and I feel embarrassment, I feel humiliation, I feel shame over the bad things that I have done. But there's another kind of shame, which is, I am a victim of someone else's evil, someone else's sin. When people experience uh, abuse of various kinds, when they are the victim of someone else's hurts, you very often experience a shame as well. And Satan loves to get in there and twist even that and attack you, not because you did something wrong, and that's so important to understand, but someone else did something wrong to you. Now here in our current example, it is clear that Israel, God's people, had shame and guilt because they themselves had done something wrong. They had rebelled against God. But what I want you to understand is that through Christ, you can experience change, restoration, and healing from all of it. Jesus is the only one who solves our problem of guilt. Jesus is the only one who solves our problem of shame when we do bad things. And Jesus is the one who brings healing for those who have been hurt by someone else. If you are experiencing shame this morning because of what someone else did to you, Jesus is there with you as well, and Jesus brings restoration to the hurting. In Christ, God will not only change these areas, God will change your pride into what the Bible here calls lowliness. In Christ, God will change your pride into lowliness. We see this in verse 11 and then again in verse 12. 
Second half of verse 11 says, for then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. Verse 12, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. God is destroying arrogance. That's good news. God is destroying pride. And the root of pride is self-worship rather than God worship. And he's changing us into those who will bring true worship to the only one who is worthy of worship. And that is God himself. Jesus is fully God, fully man. One of the reasons we know is because every time people come to Jesus in the New Testament and begin worshiping him, he does not stop them. Jesus is worthy of worship. Now, of course, before you start thinking, great, awesome, God has caught me in my sin and he wants to grab me by the neck and rub my face in the dirt and say, ha ha, let me lower you and make you lowly and make you feel guilty and caught in a shame. That is not what that word means. And we know that in particular because Jesus describes himself as lowly. If we go to the New Testament, Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says, is an invitation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. How many of us come this morning, regardless of where we may say we are on the spectrum spiritually, and say, I need rest, not just an extra nap this afternoon, but I need rest for my soul. The word lowly does not mean shamed doesn't mean embarrassed, doesn't mean shrimpy or wimpy or any of those things. Lowly is the same word in Greek, the New Testament is written in, as the word that we translate in English, meek. And guys, meekness ain't weakness. Meek, to be meek is to know one's power, to know one's responsibility, to know one's ability, and to have the love, the grace, the discernment to know when and how to use it to care for others. And that is what we see perfectly in the person of Jesus. And that is what he promises to change our pride into. Uh, Dane Ortland wrote a book called Gentle and Lowly. We read it this last Christmas, not a month ago, but uh, a year and a month ago. And in verse, uh, page 19, verse 19, in page 19 of Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland writes this. Jesus is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory, no one has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. No payment required. He says, I will give you rest. God is the God of forgiveness and of restoration. Third and finally, the Bible says here in the final portion of our text this morning that God is the God who delights in you. I find among humanity, I don't think I'm the only one, that when somebody delights in me, takes an extra second to, to compliment or encourage we, we shy away from it. It makes us uncomfortable. When, when people will show affection to my kids, you know, there's a little piece of us that we're like, oh, it's fine. But 
just dwell for a second in the reality that God delights in you. Listen again to a couple of the verses here in chapter 3. This is verse, verse 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, not some earthly dude, no, no. The Lord is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. When we really genuinely start to understand the, the delight of God in us personally, the delight of God in the bride of Christ, his church, the, the corporate people of God, our response is rejoice. To experience joy, happiness may come and go, but joy is a reality of who God is and will never change in my life. And even if it's a lousy day, I can have joy. I can be happy with the type of happiness that will never fail because in Christ, again, God will change your guilt, it says here, God will change your guilt into holiness. Another word for this type of God's grace is justification. Earlier, Zephaniah referenced what we would refer to as sanctification. Here we see justification. Westminster Shorter Catechism gives us a great definition of justification. It is an act of God's free grace in which he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight only by the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. We go back to Zephaniah chapter one, which was that the reality of God's judgment. Even here, we see the promises play out. Listen to Zephaniah chapter one, verse 17, and a little bit of verse 18. The Bible says this, God says, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Their blood shall be poured out like dust. And you may say, well, we're, I'm not seeing the good news yet. Hold on. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. Could Zephaniah, the Old Testament prophet, have realized how precisely God and his infinite grace would bring Jesus into the world and satisfy these problems perfectly? Jesus shows up, lives the perfect life, and the night in which he was betrayed, he gathers his disciples around a table and they celebrate what we now refer to as the Last Supper. And one of the things that Jesus says is he picks up the cup. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Somebody's blood must be spilled for the remission of sins. And Jesus tells us right before it happens, I will be the one. My blood will be spilled so that your blood does not have to be spilled. And understand, even as Zephaniah so clearly indicates, listen, your silver, your gold is no good here. It does not matter how much wealth you amass here in this life. You cannot take it with you and you cannot buy your salvation. Jesus' death on the cross was costly. It cost Jesus everything. It cost him his life so that for you and I, it would be free. Freedom for us, it cost Jesus everything. 
justification is this reality of the greatest exchange that has ever taken place in which Jesus says, I will take all of your guilt, all of your shame on me. I will bear it on that cross. I will take the punishment that you deserve so that you can be made free. And in exchange, I'm going to further gift you my perfect righteousness, my perfect record, so that when God the Father looks at you, he no longer sees your sin. I've taken care of it. But he also sees my perfect record and my perfect righteousness. It costs you nothing, and it costs Jesus everything. The Bible here in the Old Testament says that God will take away Israel's enemies, and he, he did that. He took care of Babylon. He took care of Assyria. But that's a temporary gift. And the ultimate gift is that Jesus himself has eliminated the greatest enemy that you've ever had. It's not somebody who said something mean about you on social media. It's not somebody that you have a vendetta against or somebody who did something awful to you. Your greatest enemy is your sin. Because the reality of our sin is it has made us worthy of death. Nobody denies the existence of death. Those enemies Jesus defeated the moment that he died on the cross and rose again from the dead, Jesus won on your behalf. He conquered sin. He conquered Satan. He conquered death so that you might rise with him. And so the Bible here says, rejoice. Rejoice. Be filled with relief, with hope, with joy everlasting. It doesn't matter what happens to you in this life. Jesus' promises in your life will never fail. So believer, rejoice. And if you've never rejoiced like that, if you've never experienced those promises, Jesus is standing here today saying, let today be the day. Come to me, Jesus says. Admit your sin. Let me forgive you and you too can rejoice now and forever. God is the God who changes our guilt into holiness. God is the God who will always be with you. God is the God who will always be with you. Verse 16. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst. In Christ, God will change you from being alone to having an eternal family. Christ will do that for you. Not only that you are reunited with God, but that you are reunited together, that we become a family in Christ. And all of the things that keep people apart in this life, all the things that keep families apart in this life, Jesus has solved and has made us one. Whatever problem you have with one another, Jesus has solved it already. The sin that has separated us from God, Jesus has made a way for us to be together with him. In the Old Testament, God's special presence being in their midst was in the tabernacle and more particularly in the the Ark of the Covenant. God's special presence resided there. But in the New Testament, Jesus comes down. In the Greek, it literally says that Jesus came and tabernacled with us, that love came down. That's the reality of John chapter one, that Jesus, the word, became flesh and tabernacled and dwelled among us. And then after Jesus dies on the cross, rises from the dead, before he ascends in John 14, he says, I will send another helper, capital H, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and he will be with you forever. He will be with you until I come back to take you home. 
And there will be this very real day of heaven that we will be with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and with all those who have been saved by the merciful blood of Jesus Christ. God is the God who delights in you. He's changed your guilt to holiness. He's come to be in your midst, and he delights in you. Again, finishing where we started, Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. I don't know about you. I need that. I need all of that from the Lord every single day. Some days I feel the reality of how much I need it more than other days, but I need it completely. I need God every single day. The ESV Gospel Transformation Study Bible says this about this very verse. It asks the question, who is God? Who is God? This is the question beneath all questions in Scripture, and I would say in our hearts. Is he a God who loves half-heartedly but punishes earnestly? Or a God who punishes reluctantly, but loves tenaciously. The Christian life is the process of growing out of the former understanding of God and into the latter. See, Jesus' deepest heart for sinners who embrace his grace is shown here in the Old Testament verse, Zephaniah three seventeen. The greatest joy of God is over you. We looked at this verse last week. It bears repeating again. In Luke 15, 7, the Bible says, Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. The Lord takes joy in your turning back to him in faith, takes joy in you. And so the reality here, we will sing over the Lord in worship, and we gather, and we do that every week. But simultaneously, the Bible is saying here literally that God is singing over you. Let that soak in for a second. In Christ, God changes your shame to exaltation. Exaltation, says the Bible here. That means, too, by the way, it's not about what anybody else in the universe says about you that informs your identity. It is about what God says about you that defines who you are. So teenagers, young adults, boyfriends or girlfriends, they're great. Your identity is not defined by what your boyfriend says or does not say about you. Your identity is not defined by what your girlfriend does or does not say about you. Their words ultimately do not matter. The word of God to you is what matters. Parents, God has gifted you and ordained you to the role as mothers and fathers to be the earthly communication of the love of God the Father to your children. That's a lot of pressure. Thank God for his grace. But remember that you have been uniquely called, gifted, and equipped that more than any other person on this earth, not just zero to 18, but for their entire lives, that you speak reality into their lives with the words that you speak or don't speak and the actions that you take, that we want our children to see and experience the love of God the Father through their moms and dads. And I will mess that up every day, and that's why I need God's grace. And even my repenting in front of my children helps my children further understand the love and the delight that God has for each one of us. See, identity is such a huge thing, isn't it? 
We see people struggle over that more and more in our current culture as we, we push further and further away from God as a, a culture. But as we wrestle with identity questions, we inevitably fall into a ditch on one side or, or the other. If the path is to walk with Jesus, we can fall into the performance trap or the performance ditch. If I just get straight A's, if I do enough good things, if I impress enough people, if I can earn enough of man's praise, then I'll feel okay about myself. Or we fall into the, the shame ditch and we go, you know what? I've messed up too many times. I'm a failure. I'm trash. No one loves me. Why would anyone love me? I think I'll just give up. Both of them are lies from Satan. Both of them are false identity traps. And the true identity is God the Father made you and he loves you. Walk in that reality. Even in the days when you, you, you feel like I've got I've to impress somebody today or the days where you're like, nobody loves me. God loves you. Listen to what David says in Psalm 139. God says, for you form my inward parts. This is David speaking about God. You form my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. 100% of every single human being ever lived fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. Sometimes you just want to be seen. Jesus sees you. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God delights in you. You have been fearfully and wonderfully made. You have value. You have importance. So beloved, God is the God of perfect justice. God is the God of perfect forgiveness and restoration. And God is the God of perfect delight in you. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you. We bring just our burdens, just our struggles, just our questions, just our sins, just our struggles. And we lay them at the foot of the cross and we know that you will solve every single one there. There was a literal historical moment when you, Lord Jesus, died on that cross in 33 AD. And we look back to that moment and we say, we want that costly blood that was spilled applied to our lives and our realities. Father, forgive us for our sins. Lord, as believers, we just admit to you afresh this morning that we have failed in a variety of ways and we need your grace and your mercy. And Father, I pray for the one who is hearing the truth of the gospel, maybe for the first time, but has never accepted or believed it, that today might be the day that they would, be, they would move from just intellectually churning, crunching the numbers to believing, accepting, I'm a sinner. God, you are real. Forgive me of my sins. I want to turn away from that nonsense, and I want to give you my entire life. Father, I pray for those who are hurting, in particular as we think about how easy it is for our identity, who we are at the core Satan says, speak so many lies, Lord. Sinfulness is in its various forms, speak so many lies, Lord. But we thank you for the reality that we are, every single person on this planet, fearfully and wonderfully made. Thank you for that gift. And Father, thank you that you rejoice 
over every single one of us who turns to you in repentance. And Father, we pray that we would give you much joy, that we would participate in your mission here on earth and sharing that good news with others, that we would see others experience the same grace that we didn't deserve either, but we are rejoicing because of what you've done for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.